Welcome to The Coda, a music podcast and the perfect endnote to your week. I'm Brian Hasty, and with me, I have the Everlast to my Danny boy, the Johnny to my Santos. I have my co-host, Rob Christopherson. Rob, how are you? Brian, we got a lot of snow, and I'll be honest, I, while I do love winter more than you, uh, this is too much snow, and <laughs> I'm calling for a strike. Like, can the clouds just strike for a little while? I'm uh, I'm of the opinion that I love that. Yeah, on Friday we got 12 inches or 12 to 13 inches, and then mm-hmm. I, I imagine because we're Northern Hemi boys who live in a similar weather system, you probably got something comparable to us. Yeah, it's about 14 inches. Oh darn yeah! And then we got another couple this morning too. So that was just it was just a perfect weekend of way too much snow that the city here in Montreal takes forever to clean. Of course, yeah. Uh, our sidewalks are still pretty shitty around here. Like normally, they're good about it, but you know, when you're trying to trudge through 14 inches of goddamn snow, there is no hope for you. You you are lost. You're gonna die. And like realistically, next to you, there's a clean road. You could have walked on it, but uh, yeah, you're gonna die stuck in the snow. This is winter up in our area. So that was my question to you, actually, is are you one of those people who goes into the street? Because I definitely do. Uh, I will say fuck this and just uh, uh, pray that there are no oncoming cars or cars going my way that don't see me. We've got a pretty decent shoulder, like going through the middle of town. So you got some space there. I'm not too afraid unless, you know, you see the big ass logging trucks that just fly through. And uh, yeah, I get a little concerned there. I don't know what their ass end is going to do, but, you know, I have a little faith. That I'm gonna make it out. Usually I do. I can't recall a situation where I haven't. So I don't know why I said usually, but I'm working with it. What I love about the intro here, uh, it, it's now slowly morphed into like weather talk for like five minutes that we do because I've noticed this is the last like three to four episodes of the six, well five plus this one that we've recorded where we just we complain about the weather. Uh, I feel like I'm turning into those co-workers that don't know what to talk to me about, but they need to, they somehow feel the need to like engage with me and the best they can do is the weather or food. Cause you know, my, <laughs> my uh, pot belly just signifies that I want to talk about food all the time. All right, Rob, this is what we're going to do for episode seven. Uh, I'm going to write up a bunch of topics. Okay. Um, and then you will do the intro, and then like uh, you will randomly select one of the ones that I've written down for you to sort of like stimulate conversation. Okay, uh, I'll I'll work on that. Okay, I will I will literally grab some cue cards and take a picture for you. Awesome! I can't wait. Let's get to uh, the reason why you and I are both here for episode six of the Coda Podcast, and that is to talk about music related affairs. Yes. Now, Rob, uh, I sent you a story that angered, frustrated, and infuriated you, and to most people, it is a very shitty situation so recently my chemical romance announced a reunion tour with a number of dates um and then the tickets went live uh, on sale january 31st now montrealer gabrielle Yaconetti recently tried to buy tickets on the i believe the toronto date for the mcr reunion tour and was faced with a number of issues while logging in from the virtual waiting room to uh, her 
ordeal endeavor, uh, uh, sad odyssey uh, that left her ticketless and super pissed off. So her experience was not an exception, but rather the norm, as uh, Twitter blew up over uh, Ticketmaster's apparent fuck-up. And she was recently interviewed on CBC Daybreak about her experience. Now what we're going to do is we're going to link to the interview um, in the show notes. But the idea here is that uh, Ticketmaster has introduced something called dynamic pricing. So what that is, it's the same as Uber surge pricing. So the more demand there is for a ticket, the higher the prices are, right? So if you go onto the Ticketmaster website and you see um, different uh, uh, gradients of uh, pricing, those are just suggested pricing for the more in-demand events, which is utterly fucking bullshit. Let's be honest here. Yeah, uh, we used to call this scalping back in the day, but uh, apparently it's just legal now. And this goes back to like sports teams about a decade ago when they started introducing dynamic pricing uh, to their events. So uh, this has been lingering for yeah nearly a decade now, and now it's finding its way into the concert venues, and uh, I'm pissed. Uh, a lot of people are pissed, and. Uh, there are, you know, Ticketmaster and Live Nation are the ones benefiting from it. Uh, the biggest frustration here, and it's been a frustration since the goddamn 90s, is that there's no fucking band that will stand up and say, no, this is not, this is not how it's going to go. The only band that ever did that was Pearl Jam. And I tend to wonder how that 95 tour would have gone. If they were more successful, if venues hadn't locked them out, if their uh, systems were better in place to handle, to, you know, the building that tour themselves, I really wonder where we would be at now. Um, and fucking pisses just pisses me off. Like this story, like Gabrielle, she she sounded like she was on the verge of tears listening to that on that show. <laughs> Well, I mean, nosebleeds for $300 a ticket? Like, how insane is that? Yeah, it's fucking bullshit. It's goddamn bullshit. But, like, how is, like, how do we go from scalping being illegal in front of a goddamn concert venue to Ticketmaster giving sellers the venue to resell their shit at such a higher rate? Like, that is just so fucking ridiculous. I kind of wanted to bring up a um, Billboard article from last summer uh, about Live Nation, right? So Live Nation is another big dog in the ticketed event space. Do you remember uh, how they were caught uh, helping artists like Metallica place tickets directly on the resale market and like how this was like a huge thing and uh, there were no chance of these tickets ever hitting the public at an appropriate price because they were allotting so many of them through uh, preferred ticketing or reticketing agents? Yes, I do remember this story. Which is, it's just, it's fucking awful. And the thing, too, is that at the end of the day, like, uh, people need to vote with their wallets. But the issue is that shows that both uh, Ticketmaster and Live Nation produce still sell well enough that they turn a profit. So they continue uh, fucking the average fan over. Right. And you're getting to a point where if a band doesn't stand up and say this shit, if bands don't, like, come together on this kind of shit, what they're basically saying is the fans that matter the most are the ones that can afford the high fucking prices to come to their shows. And I think one of the most recent bullshit stories was from the Black Keys tour last year toward, I think it was in November, that 40 minutes before the show started, they put a policy in place where they banned third-party ticket holders. 
from entering the show. Now, that's, that's just absolutely ridiculous. Why would you fuck over your fans like that? Well, you're not only talking about resellers here, but there were people who couldn't legitimately not make the show who gave their electronic ticket to their friend, right? Yes. It wasn't even for an exchange of money. It was just, I can't make it tonight. Here you go. And those fans were blocked out of that show, too. So yeah. there were a ton of people outside the venue super pissed off. Yeah, and they're like making it out to be this situation where oh this is the tour kickoff we don't do that for a tour kickoff and like who the fuck do you think you are you're the black fucking keys you've made the same fucking music for the last like decade and a half like check your goddamn ego at the door right here patrick carney can fuck off as far as i'm <laughs> concerned like get your fucking nerd glasses out of my face uh, uh, uh conversely though uh, a band that sort of went out of its way to sort of uh, inconvenience fans but also convenience them was nine inch nails uh, in early 2018 they did a tour with the jesus Mary chain and you physically had to show up to a box office to buy tickets and i thought that was really cool that is really cool it, it harkens back to the days in the early 90s late 80s early 90s you had to show up at the venue you had to buy the tickets I have memories of standing in Lake Placid, New York with my mother and my sister so that my mother could buy tickets for my sister to see New Kids on the Block. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. It it was fucking cold, man. It was cold as fuck that day. But uh, my sister got the tickets and she went. So apart from New Kids on the Block, are there instances where you had to stand in line yourself? Because I can think of one big one. Yes. Uh, the first Dave Matthews Band concert that I went to, I bought uh, lawn seats, you know, at the venue. I believe there were there were two shows that I saw at a, at a place not far from me called Lake Placid Center for the Arts. They've had some really well-known individuals play there. They had David Sedaris, like, last year. Um, they had... Uh, I saw Matt Pond, PA there. I saw... Um, a few other people i can't remember exactly off the top of my head right now but uh uh yeah i had to stand online to get those tickets at that point for me it was the anger management 2000 tour uh, headlined by limp biscuit eminem exhibit and papa roach uh and i remember standing in line at um a pharmacy that was also like a a seller of like a block of tickets right so there was like 30 of us in line waiting for noon on the saturday to hit and i had my money in my hand and i was so excited to go buy a ticket did you have a gut feeling that one of those individuals somewhere down the line would be helping individuals pimp their ride? <laughs> I was wondering where you, which act you were going to pick out of the four I named. Uh, no, I did not. Also, another individual who popped up on the 2020 edition of the Oscars inexplicably. Let's not talk about that either. Uh, uh, just yeah. a very confusing moment for all of us. Getting that moment to lose himself briefly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, uh, personally, locally in December, Live Nation acquired a 49% stake in Eventco, which is Montreal's largest promoter of ticketed events. So Live Nation has a vested interest in owning the production chain from ticketing to event production and being able to maximize profits is its only kind of like concern, right? So um, it also has very friendly relationships with a lot of these venues and it makes it harder to break the cycle. Like part of the, the, the issue that Pearl Jam was seeing is that like, were they to go outside of the Ticketmaster uh, uh, sort of like sphere, um, uh, certain venues would not play ball with them. Yeah, exactly. I was kind of amazed that, sh- that soldier field would let them play, you know, back in the day. Cause I have that bootleg. It's a great bootleg that uh, they uh, released on their own, the monkey wrench radio recording. And uh, I have fond memories 
I have fond memories of that. But uh, yeah, like when you control the venues and who plays at the venues, it's a big problem. It's and the thing problem. too is that like who is going to stand up to um, these behemoths? Because the thing is, at the end of the day, a lot of these people are making a, a larger amount of money both uh, through traditional ticket sales as well as merch, right? Which the venue grabs, and a lot of these venues are owned by Live Nation, and then uh, also through the reseller hubs that they quasi operate. There's a word that I'm going to throw out that people hate, and I know that it's not a fun thing to to suggest, but they need to be regulated. Sorry, but they do. Like, we're getting to this point where you can't – if you can't buy a concert ticket for an affordable price, then – you're either going to have to throw out some regulations here and cut, you know, cut through the antitrust bullshit or the, the, the shows that you're going to see ultimately are probably not going to be live nation shows. You're going to be yeah. going to see like smaller bands, which it's not a bad thing. Nope. And that's the thing is that uh, I've been to shows where I don't get a concert stuff, for example, because it's a pay what you can at the door or, you know, it's at a venue that like is like a squat that fits like 30 people. Right. So you'd never be able to do anything. But the best thing you can possibly do in that case is to use um, something like Eventbrite. Right. Which is not scaled properly to accommodate large scale um, um, acts as well as venues but uh, you know uh, to sell a couple hundred tickets it is sort of like an ideal space to use because you set a price you set a fee everyone's quite clear upon it right like so I don't know if you know this but Ticketmaster in Canada was fined 4.5 million dollars last year because they misled fans on the price of tickets uh, inflating them from 20 to 65 percent on the app like how does that even make sense that this is like going unchecked I mean, yes, okay, fine, but like 4.5 million is a drop in the bucket, comparatively speaking, to the amount of tickets and uh, profits grossed on, you know, a number of tours coming through here. Yeah, uh, that's some fucking shit, dude. Fucking A. Like, I am, uh, I, I am fortunate that, like, a lot of demand didn't seem to be there to see the Black Crows because uh, there was no, like, I didn't have to wait in the queue or anything like that. I got tickets right. instantly. And not only that, I was able to go back about a half hour later when my buddy was like, oh, hey, my wife wants to go. I'm like, okay, cool. And I was able to actually nab the seat right next to us. So uh, <laughs> that was really cool. But then I bought tickets to go see Impractical Jokers, which uh, I just fucking love that show. And uh, it, I was in the queue for like maybe five minutes and the only seats available were in the nosebleed section. And for four tickets, I paid over $350 Fuck. in the nosebleeds. Shit. Yeah. It's awful. It's it awful. Uh, uh, related. Come to Montreal. Let's go see Slipknot together, you and I. Let's do it, man. Fuck. <laughs> get that. Gotta get that rage out. Somehow. Yeah, just a day to remember. Opening under oath, it'll be perfect. You and me will be uh, uh, wearing bright white shirts compared to everyone else's black shirts. It'll be fine. It'll be great. Only if Under Oath plays, it's a dangerous business going outside, walking outside your front door. Uh, they might. Uh, I mean, that is a live staple for them. Let us uh, hope and pray. Or is that too on the nose for Under Oath? Uh, no, it's... Uh, yeah. Yeah, actually, it's really <laughs> on the nose for. The second article uh, on the docket this week is something that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, it's an article from The Guardian about how UK, um, quote-unquote, outlaw... Uh, rave culture is seeing a resurgence in the country, right? So in an era where culture seems more manufactured than ever before, it's always amusing and interesting to read instances where an organic scene springs up, such as the case 
with a resurgence in UK rave culture. What I've always found fascinating about rave culture is its ability to take spaces back that were originally meant for other pursuits. And the article describes a bunch of these, like a back alley, um, a warehouse, other spaces, right? So in an era where I feel like globally we are over-policed and, you know, um, also like um, over-controlled, see the top story we were talking about. It's refreshing to read accounts of people who place formalized practices with regards to spaces. Uh, how did you feel about this article? I enjoyed it. I enjoyed people taking control of something that has turned into this oppressive fucking thing where, you know, clubs are ridiculous. Like I've been into a club once, Brian, and it's the worst experience that I've ever had. Like, wait, describe this to me. Cause I will tell you about a club story I had to. <laughs> okay. It, it was in uh, Syracuse. Okay. Hold on. Let's get comfortable. Right. Like the picture, um, it, it is cold. We're Northern Hemi boys. Right. So the fire is yep. raging. Fire. Um, open up. You've opened up your live journal that you've printed out to us. Yeah, I barely made it in. I don't. I like. I don't know if my face was just like giving this guy difficulty. Like, you know, I wasn't. I'm not a hot boy. I'll just say that I'm not a hot boy. <laughs> but I, I got in. You know, sometimes you got to slip him a twenty. Whatever works to get you in that door. There really weren't that many people in there. They were kind of gyrating. I don't know. There was like a lot of shady fucking shit going on in there. Do you remember what day of the week it was? And like, uh, was it a month? Was it a season? Like, what season was it? It was winter, and it was on a Friday. Oh, so theoretically, people should be should be popping off. Yeah, no, it was pretty fucking dead in there. Like, but there did was... you roll up early? Were you there at like eight thirty? It, it was like maybe nine thirty, ten somewhere. Oh, around okay, there. so when people start showing up, in theory, yeah. Okay. And, and like nobody showed up. <laughs> like <laughs> I don't know if I, it was just the worst fucking club that you could go to or not, but like it was not very pleasant. The people there weren't really nice. Like I I've never I like clubs seem like places where people should be like there, there should be a fuck ton of people just dancing and there weren't. I don't know, man. I don't know. T- t- tell us regale us with your experience, Brian. So uh, this was my first or second year of university and a friend of a friend. Uh, uh, so Montreal has a big club culture. There's a lot of bros here. So there's a, a ton of like nightclubs you can go to. So uh, a friend of a friend was like, hey, I work at this one club and I can get you really good discounts on on drinks and, and bottles. I'll put you on guest list. Like, come on down. So three or four friends and I were like, yeah, let's let's, you know, go out on Saturday night. Let's do this. Um, so we show up to the club and run the guest list and we get in and uh, the guy's there and he's a bus boy. Um, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I got some deals. And we're like, OK, what are your deals? He's like, instead of like 200 bucks for a, a bottom shelf uh, bottle of vodka, I can do it for 185. Oh, really? And so, <laughs> like we're all university students like this is not going to fly. Right. Right. So while this is going on, one of the guys I'm with and his girlfriend are sudden kind of off to the side talking to security because he's wearing a hat and the club has a no hat policy. Of and, course uh, they do. So it was like this really weird thing where everyone got into a situation very quickly that they did not want to be in. So we stayed for a half hour. It was 10.15. It was super quiet. You know, we kind of showed up to get a vibe. And then we were thinking about maybe going to down the bar and then coming back when it was like midnight, 12.30. You know, it was moving. But we very quickly, all very quickly exited, uh, crossed the street and went drinking to at the, the metal bar that's sort of like a block away to um, sort of remedy this situation. Uh, because I ain't paying 200 bucks for a fucking bottle of, of bottle shell vodka here. No, fuck that what the hell is this bullshit yeah clubs these days they have too many rules in place the the dress codes are ridiculous like you've got to be like fucking baller just to end up in there and like no like if you know me and if you have ever seen me out in public baller is not something that i do 
Then how did you earn the nickname 4chain Rob? Uh, listen, we're not going to get into that on this episode. <laughs> maybe in the future, maybe. But uh... okay, so let's head back into the article, right? So uh, uh, <laughs> uh, let us talk about a quote from the article. So drum and bass slash jungle legend Goldie in September 29th, uh, 2019 said the following: "Culture ain't a thing you can put in a weekend festival. Rave culture is thriving, but on an underground level, people want to go to fucking raves. People want to go." to legal parties now rob are you ready to do like a four or five degrees uh of of uh coda podcast separation yeah let's do this brian do it right so tangentially as i tend to do sometimes i was doing some research for this episode and it seems as though goldie may have accidentally revealed banksy's first name what (laughs) during uh, during a 2017 episode of uk rapper scroobius's pips podcast so apparently according to goldie banksy's first name is rob so uh, that is one point. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's move further. Uh, let's uh, go to the next part of the tangent. Scrooby's Pip has a song called Let Him Come, which features Sage Francis and POS, both of which were name checked by Big Cats during our interview with him and Lydia last episode. That proves that time is a flat circle and everything is somehow related. We're in the fucking matrix, Brian. God damn it. <laughs> as soon as I fell down this rabbit hole, I was like, I think Rob's going to appreciate uh, the, these little facts and figures. So, Goldie, thank you, I guess, for revealing Banksy's name. Uh, Scrooby's Pip, thank you for existing. Also, uh, go give Let Him Come a listen. And also give Dan Lesack versus Scrooby Pips that Thou Shall Always Kill a listen. Um, and those will be on the playlist because I checked and both are on Spotify. So, it feels almost cyclical in that rave culture was huge in the uk in the late 80s and early 90s until uh government crackdown uh made them very dangerous endeavors there were large fines right the idea that if someone um had been caught uh at an unlicensed place um and they had overdosed or whatever uh those people in charge uh, would face large uh, criminal liability sentences and things like that so it was a very very kind of precarious um place to be in the mid-90s which is why it sort of like went legit for a while yeah, and the uh, the really fucked up thing is, is for this article, they talked to a police commander. His name is Dave Musker. <laughs> and he says that raves encourage antisocial behavior, which is a completely dumb statement because people are going there. They're surrounding themselves with other people. They're dancing next to other people. Yeah, it's the most antisocial fucking event you could go to. Okay, Dave, whatever. <laughs> uh, he also says that there are serious hub for criminal activity which is no like you may have like some small things going on but like the one thing about raves that i remember people talking about is that everybody kind of just looks out for everybody yeah like it's a it's a warm culture of people that have a like interest that show up to the same place to do something that they can't do anywhere else because You've put so many fucking regulations in place because you assume that uh, every rave, somebody's going to fucking die from an overdose or something like that. But realistically, like, for the most part, it's a warming culture. It's more fucking warm than a goddamn pit, man. I've been in a pit, like, four or five times in my life, and every single time, I don't know why this is, there is a small woman chasing a large man threatening to beat the (laughs) shit out of him. I don't know how this dynamic works, but I've seen it multiple times to the point where I thought I was in the goddamn Matrix, man, in a fucking show. (laughs) Uh, uh, I'm very intrigued right now. Uh, What pit or pits have you been in? I went and saw Disturbed... Stone yes. Sour. Yes. Uh, Nonpoint. Yes. Flyleaf. Yes. And the pit for Stone Sour was really intense. And 
at one point we you know we were towards the front you know we were we were jumping up and down man we were pushing each other around great time all of a sudden i see this guy who had to be like six four or something like that built like a brick house runs through the crowd and there's this tiny woman chasing him like holy (laughs) shit and she had some fucking fists man she wasn't afraid to throw those God damn! But I respect uh, that. I respect that, that. That's the most memorable one I remember being at. Uh, I went to uh, K Rockathon like uh, maybe five, six years ago. The headliner was Three Days Grace, mm. <laughs> and uh, it was uh, it was bad. We left uh, right after Chevelle had played, and man, fucking a Chevelle can fucking rock it still. They're like they're so, they're consistent. Uh, Here's my Chevelle story. It is uh, August 2014. I am at the Kentucky State Fair. So the way that it works is every night they have a free show and a paid show. So we're in Kentucky. So my friend and I decide, hey, let's get tickets to uh, the paid show because we didn't know what they they hadn't announced the free show yet. So the paid show that I was Toby Keith. So uh, uh, sort of. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What? Toby Keith. So it, it was the weirdest thing because we were like undercover Canadians. So at one point in between songs, the people in the back of us just start chanting America for no particular reason. Like Toby hadn't egged them on. No one was saying anything. And so just America over and over and over again for like three minutes. It was very, very odd. But the free show that night was Chevelle. Hot damn, man. And I am so mad <laughs> for missing out, uh, for having paid extra money to go see Toby Keith and then like not seeing Chevelle because I've yet to see them. And uh, that was my time. That was my moment to see Chevelle. Dude, for a three-piece band, they fucking rock the house every. They're single probably time. one of the most underrated, like like rock trios, like commercial rock trios of the last like two decades. I'd say, like you go back to the last couple of records, there are still a lot of bangers on there. Yeah, there are still fucking bangers. Like if you stop listening to Chevelle, like with the red, seriously, listen, listen to fucking Sci-Fi Crimes, man. That's yes. a hell of a record. Or Love even the record, record after that, right? Like like uh, the Clincher, like yep. rated R, like all of these things. Like go listen. Uh, to Chevelle. I can't believe I'm saying this on the Coda Podcast in 2020. But hey, whatever. We're here. We're now. We're uh, talking about radio, right? So uh, uh, to continue onwards, the UK historically has been more ready to embrace outlaw music culture than other parts of the world, like the States and Canada, from raves to pirate radio stations. And also, side note, if you haven't yet, yet watched the television show People Just Do Nothing, which is about the world's worst pirate radio station, uh, go do so now. I know it's available on Netflix in Canada. I'm not sure about the States. But Rob, if you have the chance, check out an episode or two. Um, it seems as though... Uh, this sort of thing has been part of the popular discourse for decades now. Like, uh, you know, uh, post-war uh, Radio Caroline, Radio London were beaming information and pirate radio stations from offshore ships and MTC forts. Like, that's so cool. That is fucking awesome. I love it. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a book plug because you know why the fuck not? Uh, if you're interested in a novel about uh, a pirate radio station, go listen or sorry, go read uh, Radio Free Vermont by bill mckibben it's really good i'm loving that you're bringing the books to the table and i'm scared that the b-side recommendation is gonna be another fucking book but like whatever no i've got i'm (laughs) I'm fucking bringing it dude you're gonna love this one all right so from the article in an area of austerity the unlicensed rave scene offers people a low-priced alternative to legal clubs but that's not the main reason people uh, decide to attend according to sophie dunium one half of underground electronic music duo my bad sister which started emceeing at legal events she says 
uh, it offers people a place where they can come together as a community without prejudice and without intimidation. So kind of like a, a, a counterpoint to what the uh, establishment, what the cops were saying beforehand. And the funny thing, too, is like when you read the description of the people who show up, it's not people in like camo pants like it was in the 90s and like tie dye shirts. It's, you know, like punks, people who are dressed down, people who are dressed up, people who are just nondescript, people of like a number of different subcultures have come to congregate in this space because of a communal feeling. Yeah, it's a place where like you can feel represented, you know, in any fucking way possible. So it's more inviting than a club who's going to turn down uh, people of certain ilk that they don't want in their goddamn club, which is absolutely <laughs> fucking ridiculous. Like, why do we, what are we doing in 2020? Like, I don't know. Seriously, what don't are know. The, you know what we need to, you know what you need to do sometimes, Brian, you need to seize the means of production and <laughs> dance your ass off. Amen to that. Uh, Rob, have you ever booked any shows before? I have never booked a show. Okay. I, I know, like, you've booked shows, though, yes. right? and so I kind of wanted to talk about that quickly. There was a, a, a very illegal house that used to run a lot of shows. And then one time we had the error, uh, misfortune, but also, like, a great endorsement of having... Uh, so basically, the, the space fit 50 people. We had 125 show up. And uh, I was very panicked that the cops were going to come in, that we get a very big fine. But thankfully, it played out. It was on a quieter end street of um, uh, a suburb of Montreal. Um, so thankfully, like there wasn't too much attention. But the entire night, I was worried about all of the legal ramifications of if someone did something bad. And so I can't even imagine how these uh, rave producers and uh, you know uh, space uh, uh, users feel about taking over space that's not even their own and then turning it into uh, a communal um, space for celebration. I, I to me it is an anxiety ridden uh, uh, a minefield of of death and shittiness. But more power to them, knowing how I feel. I feel like I'm learning more about your li- illegal activities, Brian. And, uh, <laughs> I am we're, not going to tell you when this happened or where. Um, so I'm going to close things off with a quote um, by <laughs> Sophie Dunium. Uh, she says, when communities are united, they are stronger and they can't be pushed around. And that is very, very true. Yeah. So, so t- uh, a maxim, if you will, right? Like, fuck Ticketmaster. And, uh, fuck uh, Ticketmaster, yeah. Go rave culture. Fuck yeah. Rave culture all the way. Let's... Let's go into an abandoned warehouse and do this shit. You know, like, this podcast is going to inevitably lead to us doing that at one point, right? Just us throwing an illegal rave. I think before we do that, we need to meet in Plattsburgh at, like, the 99 and just do a podcast. Yes, which is why, like, we've both inhabited these spaces together. Like, I've been to the Walmart there. You have been to the Walmart there. How was your experience at the Walmart? It's always fun. It's it's fine. Uh, The sad sad camera's closed, though, right? Uh, yes, they did shut it down. Okay. Unfortunately, uh, uh, we went to the the ground round to eat once. It was fine. Uh, we used I used to eat there with my parents a lot. Uh, like I want to say, like every time we went to Plattsburgh, which is usually like once or twice a month, because uh, where I live, for the longest time, if you wanted to buy underwear, you had to go forty miles away to go and get it. <laughs> <laughs> now my hometown has what we call a community store where you can buy underwear. I was I was excited to say that now I am the purveyor of, of underwear. I am the creator of underwear. Have you seized the means of production, Brian? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Perhaps that you have a side gig that you don't <laughs> want to talk about. And that's fire. Um, you, listen, I don't... None of this shit is FDA approved. So, uh, you know, your underwear may lead to rashes i don't know so don't what you're saying is know. is rob's good old-timey underwear emporium uh, uh the underwear is for 
uh, entertainment purposes only. It's not to be worn. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah, like, put it in a frame and, like, put it on the wall. You'll be fine then. <laughs> uh, uh, before this completely derails, let us talk about the last item <laughs> to bring to your attention. It is a Reddit thread from the R Entrepreneur subreddit all about Little Nas X. So as we've discussed in the show previously, streaming services have changed our music listening habits. But what about music creation, Rob? Mm. Uh, so meme lord Little Nas X's Old Town Road is an exa- uh, like an excellent example of music creation primed for virality. Released in November 2018, Old Town Road clocks in at a minute 53 seconds. Originally made waves on TikTok and Twitter, and then disappeared for a minute before resurfacing in early 2019 and gaining momentum. The remix with Billy Ray Cyrus definitely elevated the song to new heights into a record-setting reign atop the Billboard charts. But how did it get there? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a certain amount of luck involved, but Lil Nas X also made several very smart moves to position himself for maximum exposure. Man, did he. Uh, and, and like, this story comes from a Reddit thread that you've linked me to, and I think first things first, Brian, we need to get this out of the way. This poster is obsessed with Lil Nas X sitting on his sister's couch. You know what? He has probably like a very, he or she, they have a very distinct mental image of Lil Nas X as a couch enjoyer. As a couch enjoyer, even at one point says he's sitting in his underwear on his sister's couch. Like, <laughs> how the fuck do you know this, dude? Did you talk to Little Nas X? Did you, like, interview him? Dude, 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 what if it actually is Little Nas X? Holy shit, I didn't even think about that. So, That's uh, a good point. Until you just decided to describe this situation, this actually, this would make a lot of sense, though. So, um, like, a disclaimer... There are suggestions that Lil Nas X had artificially boosted interest in his track through uh, uh, buying Twitter accounts and buying Twitter mentions. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. So that would make sense that he would then go on Twitter um, to then uh, produce and uh, send the song out. And then, you know, months later, end up on Reddit talking about himself. Yeah, that would be a, a fucking genius move. God damn, that's that's brilliant marketing right there. Uh, the interesting thing is, is like we do know that like... You know, the videos that he uh, put his music to, he did, like, give to people to put on their feeds. Like, we do know, like, through tweets from other people that uh, he did, like, distribute them to other people to get it out there. And I think his rise at the beginning is kind of associated with, like, it's meme culture, but, like, when you place a song alongside a video like it's it's more enduring you get more from it and i think like because you can do that music kind of has an easier route to becoming viral in a way for sure the one thing that uh this poster makes mention of is the fact that they removed old town road from the country charts yes and that initially got him the attention that ended up boosting Old Town Road to number one. What I wanted to... Like, how did it stay there? Because it wasn't because it was removed from the country charts. There's no way that that's the reason why it was number one for 19 weeks in a row. So, like, that that's interesting. He kind of gamed the system in that every time he released a remix those numbers counted for Old Town Road, right? So he put out the Billy Cyrus, and then he put out the videos for them, right? But those would all count towards uh, uh, the original song injury. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Fucking brilliant way to just game that goddamn system, man. 
so also something I'd like to discuss, and the reason I mentioned this at the outset is uh, the length of the song, right? So uh, minute 53. Uh, it's a perfect earworm that is meant to be played and replayed endlessly. So Rob, of course, I can't go an episode without mentioning Korn, right? So back in the day, Korn had a song <laughs> called Y'all Want a Single that clocked in at 3 minutes and 17 seconds. So common wisdom 15, 20 years ago is that the average perfect pop track was 327. That doesn't exist anymore. See you later, three plus minute songs. The weird thing is, is like, now we live in an era where pop songs are getting shorter. You're talking like a lot of them are now starting to uh, be less than three minutes. Like you're talking like two minutes, 40, two minutes, 50, somewhere in there, because like realistically, you don't need to keep people engaged for that long. Yeah, maybe our attention spans are getting shorter, whatever. But like, but also something to note, something that was brought up in the comment section is that he chopped off the last chorus, which is usually there um, in the classical structure of a, of a pop song, right? So then people would then re-listen for that chorus at the beginning of the song, which I thought was super interesting. I hadn't even considered it until I went to go listen to it today, and I was like, that is actually quite true. Yeah, if you're used to like a structure when it comes to a song and you don't get what your brain is expecting, not surprised that you'll go back to it and listen to it again. Brilliant fucking move. Just yeah, brilliant. Yeah. So yeah, like I was saying before, he lined up the remixes, the videos. Uh, and I think that like, this was like a, like a fully formed package, right? Because I remember um, noticing that there were videos of Red Dead Redemption 2 with the track playing over because he had made a music video for it. And I was like, oh, that's, that's a smart move. Um, and then, you know, this song kind of lives with us forever endeavor right so uh speaking of total package the iconic cover of the single black horse and then on the remix what you got you got the brown horse for billy ray cyrus fucking a man fucking <laughs> a this is like he needs to teach a class on marketing for music i agree um, i agree and the, and the thing is is like you know like i said like with things like books there's no telling what book is going to sell there's no telling that. There's no telling which movie is really going to do well at the box office. Yeah, you kind of have a gauge with uh, a good portion of films, especially if it's like uh, uh, associated with a certain director or it's like the Marvel MCU. You can kind of gauge like how. Well, it's it's funny you say that be. in that we are recording in the week right after Birds of Prey came out and had not a disastrous first week, but a very underwhelming first week into the box office, which is sad because by all accounts. I've seen almost everyone I know who I trust instinctually uh, when they talk about movies said that they love the movie. Yeah. Uh, fuck, who was it? Uh, I saw a lot of support for the film on Twitter, and by all accounts, it's a fucking great-ass film. I want to see it when it comes to my tiny-ass town, which hopefully does soon. But, yeah, you, you figure that film in the era that we live in now should fucking do amazing yeah and it didn't do jack shit which is it's upsetting is it's sad yeah which is to say like i think that your point of like we can't even predict what's next like that's the worst part no we can't predict what's next but or is it the best part i can't i can never decide whether or not the internet and meme culture and virality are like good or bad things anymore right like it's great when something that has low expectations exceeds them like tremendously like uh watching guardians of the galaxy for the first time fucking like totally exceeds expectations because agreed l let's be honest most people don't didn't know who fucking guardians of the galaxy were going in with that cast and like that film fucking amazing but like i think music has 
the easiest way an easiest time be- becoming viral becoming like this making artists b- huge i think tiktok is helping with that tremendously which um, yes you and i have both discussed our love and our hatred of tiktok and the content therein uh but i do agree with you that i there's a lot of content surrounding the usage of songs like there's the Camila mm-hmm. Cabello the baby song right now that's kind of big on there that I've seen a lot of people do videos for and I feel like that has helped it the funny thing is since I've joined TikTok about two months ago I now check the Spotify global charts and there is a clear uh, uh, cohesion in between what I hear um, and then what I see on TikTok uh, in terms of music yeah like one company fucking figured out how to game the system that's fucking wild man I know, I know. Uh, also, just to close things off for Little Nas X, uh, shouts out to Trent Reznor, of course, CMA winner for uh, uh, <laughs> having his, uh, what is it, like 34 Ghosts 4 or 5? I can never remember the nomenclature. Yeah. But it's... one of his Ghosts tracks end up being the bed for the song that Little Nas X um, procured to make Old Town Road. So uh, that is a weird 2019-2020 twist. Uh, Trent Reznor, CMA winner for uh, Musical Event of the Year. I mean, you know, first it was Johnny Cash, then it was Lil Nas X. Fucking A. <laughs> Who will finish the triumvirate, right? <laughs> right. Right. Who? Okay, Who's Brian, let's, let's, make, let's make predictions now. Who do you think it's going to be? Do you think it, it I mean, let's, let's pick from an established artist. Who's going to go down this road? Shit. Uh, like, how established are we talking here? Because I have lots of ideas and I don't know where to put them. You know, I've got one artist in mind. I've only is got it? one artist in mind. And and uh, Zach Brown, I think he's going to do it. I think Ooh. he will fucking... Ooh. I think he'll fucking bring... He'll be the worst of it. He'll bring... Well, he it, has... What, you were showing me that EP he recorded? Oh, God. That, yeah. The the controversy. <laughs> and, and it was just... It was fucking awful. Let's be honest here. I know. Like, and I can't believe I still quoted lyrics from it in our second episode. <laughs> Uh, uh, truly, truly a fall. I'm going to say, um, hmm, shit. Uh, I don't know. I, I want to like say something weird like Gucci Mane, but that doesn't make any sense. No, but I, I you know, that that's we're a possibility. The, we're, we're rolling the content dice here. We're just seeing where it goes. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. What, we'll see what happens from here. But like, <laughs> maybe, uh, yeah, he, he, there's another CMA in his future. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, And with that, Rob, let's cap things off and head on over to the main uh, section of episode six of the Coda podcast. So with the 2020 Oscars in our rearview window, we thought we would take a spin on the proceedings and sort of uh, imagine a world in which uh, Rob and I get to uh, award some trophies ourselves. So the category of best soundtrack does not yet exist at the Oscars. And while the score category is there and the best original song category and the best song written for visual media also exist, there's not currently space to celebrate the successful collection of songs relating to a film. So I see some hands going up and, you know, what is the difference between a score and a soundtrack? So let's break it down. So a film score can be defined as music created for the expressed inclusion of the material within the film, primarily, though not exclusively instrumental. It's meant to fit in as a uh, puzzle piece alongside the visuals and then uh, does not necessarily fit the constraints of traditional 
pop music, whereas a soundtrack can be defined as music that can be found in a film, but whose creation was not necessarily explicitly for the film themselves. An ideal example of this would be actually, funnily enough, Rob, The Guardians of the Galaxy, Austin Mix Volume 1, which uh, has tracks that are mostly 40 to 50 years old for a movie that was made five years ago. So I thought that was kind of interesting that you'd mentioned that ahead of time. Something else, for example, is Curtis Mayfield's Superfly, which was created um, in mind for the film, but also the songs stand as their own pieces. So I guess in this instance, it would almost be like the equivalent of awarding someone an Oscar for best mixtape. So mm-hmm. I've picked a mixture of soundtracks that are curated by someone involved with the production or soundtracks where in specific performers were approached to contribute um, to the entirety of the soundtrack, et cetera, et cetera. So Rob, I would love to hear your pick for who would get the best soundtrack Oscar. I think what's brilliant about my first pick is that uh, if you want to see the uh, documentary that was uh, that is accompanies the soundtrack, you're going to have to find it on VHS. It's not available on DVD. It's not available on digital. And you, there is no digital version of the soundtrack out there. You have to buy it on CD. It's somewhere in my storage unit. I wish I had the time to go to, down there and get it and re-listen to it. This is the only soundtrack that I didn't have time to re-listen to for that reason. But uh, in the mid-90s, there was a documentary called Hype. Surviving the Northwest Rock Explosion, the motion picture soundtrack. And I think what's brilliant about this is, like, if you're thinking about an album, like, Saturday Night Fever gave you this, like, snapshot of disco. And I think a lot of people, when they talk about that, you know, Northwest Rock Explosion that they're mentioning here they'll go to the soundtrack for the movie Singles, which is an amazing soundtrack. I wanted to put it on here, and I thought about putting it on here as my first choice because there are a lot of great cuts from uh, Alice in Chains, uh, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, like all the staples. Paul Westerberg had some fucking bangers on that thing. It was pretty damn great. But this collection is really curated to give you an idea of what the Seattle scene was all about. And sure, you've got songs from Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden, but what you're also getting is choice cuts from bands that were a staple of the scene that you never heard of, like the Fastbacks, the Posies, Flop, Green River. Mark Lanigan had a solo track on there. It's 22 songs, brilliantly curated, I could do without the Pearl Jam song because it's a live cut of uh, Not For You, which is not really indicative of that time. But, like, other than that, it's a really good soundtrack. You should go listen to it. It it still kind of holds up. I mean, Green River is kind of one of the original bands in this situation, and the members of Green River, uh, two of them went on to form Mudhoney and... Two of them went on to be a part of uh, Pearl Jam and Mother Love Bone, who were also featured on that soundtrack. But uh, to me, this is the Saturday Night Fever of the Seattle scene. And I and I think it is worthy of an Oscar for Best Soundtrack. I would agree with that. It also has a performance by The Gits, which, oddly enough, I was watching some uh, Unsolved Mysteries last weekend, so they had mentioned how uh, their singer, Mia Zapata, uh, had, they had done a whole piece on her, her murder, right? Which was yeah, uh, very unfortunate, so I thought that was kind of interesting um, and, and sad, too. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. That is a great pick. That's a, a very time and place kind of pick, which mm-hmm. I really, really like. Yeah. Uh, 
I'm for my first pick going to go way more juvenile than you. Okay. I'm picking uh, South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. So oh. though Matt Stone <laughs> and Trey Parker's Blame Canada lost the best song Oscar to Phil Collins' You'll Be In My Heart uh, mm-hmm. in 99, I do contend that the entire package, uh, Rob, is worthy of an Oscar. Uh, while the first 12 of 20 tracks are made up of the bulk of the film score, with actually one notable exception, which I'll get to after, there are then eight other tracks that are inspired by the film. So you got your Kid Rock with your Joe C, right? R.I.P. Yep. You got your RuPaul. You got your Rush performing the Canadian National Anthem. Them. Mm-hmm. And then you have your world class material from the uh, from the movie itself, from the La Resistance, La Resistance medley to uh, Michael McDonald's Eyes of a Child. Take a sec and go read the lyrics. Uh, Mike's got some awesome hilarious lines here, including uh, randomly in the middle of the, the song includes the non sequitur. If you want, I can even get my friend Steve to detail your car for like twenty bucks. <laughs> sung with hearty conviction. <laughs> Uh, so uh, for that alone unfortunately it is not available um, on any streaming service from what I can see Um, unlike the Christmas album so I don't understand why there's one but not the other but that's fine so um, the exception I was mentioning is that at one point in the movie Kenny dies and there's a song called Hey Little Boy You're Going to Hell which is sung by James Hetfield of Metallica uncredited and only recently in the last couple years has he admitted uh, to doing that but the song is a true banger Uh, you can probably find some uh, clips on YouTube Um, but go check that out I would suggest um, you know uh, using YouTube to discover uh, Kid Rock Talking about Kyle's mom's a big fat bitch, <laughs> yeah. but also yeah, I have to, I do have to say the Michael McDonald song in particular, "Eyes of a Child." It, Rob, it is so genius because it goes so with and then against type that like you can tell that Mike's having fun with it. <laughs> yeah, like that soundtrack is completely fun. Uh, that's a great fucking choice, man. I that's know. just a fucking banger <laughs> choice. I didn't see that fucking coming. You you hit me you hit me with a knuckleball. Okay, <laughs> so what is your second choice? Uh, my second choice is, um, it is in a soundtrack that was number one for five weeks on the Billboard 200. It has sold 7 million copies. It, uh, was nominated for the Album of the Year Grammy. Didn't win. But is ultimately a testament to 90s R&B, and that is the soundtrack to Waiting to Exhale. Oh, Um, hell yeah. Yeah, um talk about an all-star fucking like like movies have all-star casts this soundtrack has an all-star fucking cast to begin with from whitney houston to mary j blige brandy tlc aretha franklin shaka khan so many other artists and all of these songs are fucking bangers it was produced by babyface a lot of the songs were written by babyface except for i think my uh, funny valentine uh the one song that shaka khan did which is fucking amazing it pisses me off that it's not available on spotify along with the rest of the soundtrack it's the only one and it's a it's still a banger but like the highlights man whitney houston has two just fucking uh amazing songs exhale and uh count on me with cc winans fucking uh what a beautiful closing fucking track man um mary I'm j blige i'm loving this mary j blige's not gonna cry is fucking one of the best performances that she ever gave on a goddamn song i can't believe i'm about to say this but brandy's sitting up in my room that's so fucking good man so fucking good i love that song um I think that TLC's This Is How It Works is ahead of its time because we're talking about 1995, okay? That song is so overtly sexual, I'm surprised that it made that fucking album. I mean, yeah, it wasn't released as a single, but, like, 
fucking hey that thing was that song was precocious man like nobody was fucking i think the only song that could even be like in that same milieu maybe like no man here like, i got one, i got one for you yeah uh, she's also on the soundtrack, but Tony Braxton's "You're Making Me High." He's I was very, thinking of that. I was thinking of that. Uh, when you're I, in the car I, with your parents, and she talks about touching herself. Yep, yep. very problematic. Very problematic as a child. <laughs> what did your parents say? Nothing. Nothing. There was nothing to be said about that. Yeah, uh, I remember seeing that music video. I was uh, let's see, we're talking 1996 now. I was 13 years old. I I was having. Um, I was having some uh, emotional some thoughts, moments. Some thoughts. I was having some thoughts. Uh, but <laughs> fucking A, man. This album is so full of bangers. And it truly stands the test of time as one of the greatest soundtracks of all time. You you can't knock it. And, like, I listened to it today and it still fucking bangs, man. I agree with that wholly. Uh, I love that choice, Rob. That is... Uh, and uh, both a characteristic and then uncharacteristic of you. And unfortunately, I have to bring things down with my second choice, which is very characteristic of me, um, which is the Judgment Night soundtrack. <laughs> so okay. the and I, I have an intro for this. Uh, okay. The pairing of guitar based music and hip hop, you know, rap music uh, first occurred when Run DMC met Aerosmith in the 80s. Then for the harder heads, we got Anthrax and Public Enemy for their collabo on the remake of Bring the Noise. And then came Judgment Night. So the soundtrack to be largely forgotten, 1993, Emilio Estevez, Cuba Gooding Jr. vehicle, maybe rap, rock at its most pure and mightiest. Leading shit off is Helmet and House of Pain's Just Another Victim with its immortal lines, Holy Diver, I'm a Survivor, Feeling Like De Niro and Taxi Driver with Jodie Foster and Harvey Keitel. And these are actual lyrics from the song. So Paige Hamilton's usual guitar wizardry lends a catchiness to this track that still resonates today other highlights include faith no more and booyah tribes another body murdered with uh, faith no more's mike Patton, providing some great very operatic opening intro vocals before the thing slaps you in the face with the um so uh booyah tribe is simone american right so they're a group of simone american uh, rappers and they unleash this t- torrent of rhymes that just hits you that is a fucking brilliant choice man i <laughs> can't even remember the last time i listened to that it has been a, a long time probably a, a lot of people, over a, a decade yeah, over a decade. I think you have brought relevance to one of the underrated soundtracks <laughs> of all time. Brilliant move. So, uh, before yeah, I forget, it's a banger. It's a banger fucking album. Because like elsewhere, you've got Ice-T and Slayer teaming up for a track which is called Disorder. It's actually a medley of three uh, exploded songs, so they're like a UK punk band. And then Sonic Youth and Cypress Hill teaming up on a song called I Love You, Mary Jane. Gee, how uncharacteristic of Cypress Hill. And then, of course, Cypress Hill and Pearl Jam link up for the last track. So, Rob, I don't know if you know this, and I kept this purposely hidden from the show notes, but Rolling Stone actually put out an oral history of how the soundtrack came out together uh, in, in 2018, and I'm wanting to share that with you. Holy fuck. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to send that I'm your gonna, way after this is over. Yeah, please do. Please but do. yes, I just I love the idea of a uh, this soundtrack from 1993 uh, inciting interest in 2018 and of that Rolling Stones like go get this oral history guys. Fucking like the one music outlet that can't stop giving albums three and a half fucking stars <laughs> has something that brilliant on it. That's amazing. 
Fucking, uh, I'm, I'm just, uh, full admission here, Rolling Stones album reviews are fucking trash, don't ever read If them. I had a bell, I would ring it, like a, you know, like a town crier would, because I, uh, I've never, like, I've never loved them, have I read them? Absolutely. Um, mostly out of boredom, right, because sometimes it's the only yeah. magazine around relating to music that I, I, I can get my hands on, but, uh, I largely agree with their assessment that they're mostly wrong and they need to stop, um, jerking off YouTube. Uh, yes, they do. They need to let's stop doing that to Green Day. Uh, Green Day, last like good thing that they ever did was American Idiot. We can just yes. let, like like let that go. And like I've heard that new album, and dear fucking god, I give up what after a, three songs. I I, just, I, I don't know how I made it through. I think it was just because it was twenty six minutes long that I was able to survive that goddamn thing. But there, the, here, if you want a good example of how trash, uh. Rolling Stone album reviews are. They gave Jeff Buckley's Grace three stars, and then they put it in their fucking top 500 albums of all time. Get your fucking bullshit out of here. Surprise. That's, yeah, fucking God. That's trash. Totally trash. Uh, uh, so let's move on from non-trash to, to, sorry, from trash to non-trash. What is your last selection for um, a soundtrack that deserves an Oscar Rob? Well, uh, this is one that most people aren't going to consider a soundtrack but you know what i'm a fucking rebel here and i do what i want uh this album fuck it's uh it's one of the most amazing performances one of the most amazing things to watch on uh dvd blu-ray digital whatever the fuck you watch it on the last waltz oh yeah uh, that, that is a soundtrack and you, it, it, you know, Scorsese's fucking film is incredible. It's shot very well. Like you get all the emotions that go into this fucking show, but like these performances, even today still fucking stick with me. Like the version of the weight that the staple singers are on, that is one of the most fucking incredible versions of that song that I've ever heard. But like, to me, this soundtrack feels like a band that is walking through the gates of heaven and they're playing with all their friends. That's really what it feels that like. That is such a good way of putting it. Yeah. And like, I think the, the lasting impact of it is the fact that the band never played another show after that. Yeah. It was the end as opposed to, you know, other bands like fucking kiss that don't know when to give it up. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not even going to mention talk about kiss. They should have, uh, I mean, like, shameless capitalism has uh, fueled Gene Simmons and company for decades now, right? I mean, when you've got yourself a goddamn kiss coffin, you know you've sold out. Uh, one lucky winner uh, of the Coda Podcast contest will win kiss condoms a lifetime supply. <laughs> but I, that, Rob, that is such a good pick because um, uh, their rendition of, of their track Up on Cripple Creek, which I think... <sighs> is very early in the film, if not opens the film. I can't remember yeah, how it does. goes. Yeah, it does. Um, but for some reason, it sticks out in my mind. But it is such a powerful statement. And then, of course, yeah, you have your Eric Clapton's, you have your Neil Young's, you have uh, your Ronnie Hawkins. You have everyone there, you know, your Van Morrison's, your Dylan's. But then at the, at the core of this is is the band, right? Like, mm -hmm. so good. So fucking good. That's such a good pick, dude. Mm. I love it. Brian, what's, what's your last choice, man? It is a film soundtrack that probably made Iggy Pop a very rich man. It is a uh, soundtrack that is the ground zero for usage of uh, Iggy Pop's Lust for Life, and it can be found right here on uh, 1996's Trainspotting soundtrack. Mm -hmm. it, was a, a, it was a soundtrack I actually considered. Oh, really? Yes. 
Uh, it is a, uh, and it kind of reminds me of your um, uh, your first pick for hype. It is a soundtrack that is a perfect snapshot of a time and place, right? So, Lust mm-hmm. for Life was used as background music for the film's trailer as Ewan McGregor utters uh, the following, which anyone with a plastic knowledge of the film will recognize as the words that appear on its well-known poster. So, if anyone who ever went to film school in the late 90s, of course, will remember the poster. And it says things like, choose life, choose a job, choose a career, choose a family, choose a big television, choose washing machines, cars, compact disc players, electrical tin openers, choose leisure wear and matching luggage. And I'm going to quit there while I'm ahead. But uh, mm-hmm. it's kind of similar in, to how the Pixies Where's My Mind's inclusion in Fight Club can be blamed for a large number of student productions using it in their short films from like 2000 to 2005. Lust for Life is but the tip of the iceberg, Rob. Yeah, it is. And it's just a fucking incredible collection of songs that like perfectly encapsulate what a film feels like. And to me, there are very few soundtracks that can do that. Uh there's a couple that I can name off the top of my head. The Rushmore soundtrack really yep. kind of sets you into that time and place of that film. And also, um, the life aquatic with Steve Zissou. It's, um, yeah, the Sue George, like the, yeah. the, the, the Bowie stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's just like, because of those performances, he's able to like bring you like Bowie's not a guy that you think of in a nautical setting, but like, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's just the brilliance of that film is like you could think about bowie in space and now you could think about him under the fucking water it's really? true it's true that's such a good point that i've never really fully considered um uh, and then like on the soundtrack to train of course there's a uh, night clubbing uh iggy pop which is a great haunting kind of track um with that weird reverbed out drum beat um there's primal screams train spotting the de facto title track there's um a rendition of new order's temptation there's lou reed's perfect day and the piece resistance underworld's born slippy dot nuts yeah so with its ascending synth intro and gained out vocals the nearly 10 minute song evokes a, a sense of euphoria with its trans flavorings which also reminds me of us having uh, being self-referential, of course, because we talked about race before. And it's also used as the piece that closes out the film. It's truly iconic 90s cinema right here. Yeah, it is. Fuck. That's just a so, great fucking choice. You know? uh, the soundtrack did so well that they actually uh, put out a second volume of music, mm-hmm. which includes more hip hop, as well as a song by MCI's called Think About The Way, which I was obsessed with as a 10-year-old, Rob, because I had gotten this CD of uh, game demos for um, my Windows 95 machine, and on there was a trailer for a, a video game, and that it soundtracked it, and I just I kept listening to it. And it was very weird. My mom was like super confused as to why I just kept playing it. You were going through some complicated times, Brian. Uh, dude. I dude, understand. I I was having thoughts. You were having <laughs> thoughts. You were going through a change, Brian, and I under I understand. Uh, it kind of also reminds me of like on a less a little lesser note the uh, the soundtrack to High Fidelity, man. Like, yes. that's a that's a. It doesn't so, feel like a soundtrack. It feels like a playlist. One guy's have playlist. Have you have you gone back to watch the movie? Yes. Uh, it doesn't hold up very well. Yeah. Not as not as well. The music portions of it, yes. yes. So everything having to do with the music, yes. Uh, uh, a man's quest to uh, self-flagellate doesn't stand up as well. I found I, I tried watching it last year and I had to break it up into three parts. And it just like fifteen-year-old me loved the movie, and then like mid-thirties me was like, "What? I, I can't, I can't bear to watch this man self-destruct in this way." Right. Like it's John Cusack, like having a fucking temper tantrum for yeah. most of a film. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh the the book still like holds up oh like, dude the book the nick Hor- like the yeah the nick hornby book is much better than the movie still yeah yeah it is uh i wish i could see i could have seen the musical I'm, oh uh, yeah just to just to see how that that was but uh 
yeah the the film for yeah most of his story fucking blows but man like those moments in that record store talking about music is yes. like what I fucking love about that movie. I, it is the only parts that I feel still stand up in 2019, 2020. And so I'm glad that you said that the soundtrack still stands up because I agree that the soundtrack itself, super fucking good. The contents of like, what, like 80% of the movie outside of the record store are not great. No, no, just uh, shit. So Rob, I had some honorable mentions I wanted to run by you to make you laugh. Yeah, go for it, man. The end of day soundtrack, which includes uh, Industrial Guns N' Roses with Oh My God, Limp Biscuits Crushed, <laughs> Korn's Camel Song, some Paraman 5000. Uh, similarly, the Dracula 2000 soundtrack, right? Had Jonathan Davis writing a bunch of the songs on there. And then uh, due to uh, contractual obligations, had his friends sing them, right? So the guy from Orgy, I think, sings one of them. And then, and then yeah, uh, Wayne Static from Static X, RIP. And then finally, also um, Drive, simply because of uh, Kaczynski's Night Call is such an iconic song. Mm, yeah no i i agree thank god you didn't say gothica man because if you said gothica <laughs> i would have gone to montreal myself to track you down i would have i would have dropped the pin on my phone and be like come get me <laughs> so were there any other ones that you had considered that you're like you know what not iconic enough or just uh, rather like fun but not the the level of fun or engagement that you would thought you wanted yeah um i'm more of like a serious like person when it comes to this stuff i'm uh, like i i try to have fun but uh, like when i was like going through some of the soundtracks i'm like uh, i want to really capture a vibe when i'm listening to this and like i want it to kind of remind me of the film one that i thought of was uh eddie vetter's soundtrack to into the wild oh which, yeah which is uh eh, man like I haven't been able to watch that movie a second time. Same. In large part because it makes me feel like we've lost our connection to, like, the world that we fucking inhabit in, and there's no fucking way to go back. So you go through that process with a guy who didn't know how to fucking survive in the woods and he goes to try and survive in the woods and now we all know his fucking story thanks a lot john krakauer it's an amazing story but like yeah, yeah. i i fuck you dude just yeah. fuck you krakauer i don't know no like f- like fuck off dude and i mean but also that- like i feel like that's the perfect distillation of like um eddie vader's solo right like it's just him writing folk songs you know some on a ukulele some on a guitar just it's beautiful stuff right it's like if jack johnson got real serious for like a half hour 45 minutes yeah and he didn't want to talk about banana pancakes yeah for like, <laughs> for like a hot exactly. minute but like <laughs> rise is one of those like rise is a song that almost feels like a call to the woods that you you want to get up yeah and you just want to go for a hike it it, yeah it just does that it's that uplifting fucking um uh mandolin that just like kind of brings you and then uh hard sun man that Dude. uh, dude i remember listening to it on the buzz a lot and just like that was a yeah that was that was a song that like the that performance is like uh it's, and then it's the, last, the most rocking song from it yeah and then the last track guaranteed like it's what like six seven eight minutes long so I, I remember it being the longest and i just it it's so good so yeah good it, it is and like uh, my reticence to like ever watch that film again is the reason why i didn't really put it on this list but it, it is it's an incredible fucking soundtrack just just go to listen to it um the soundtrack to Repo Man, uh, oh, yeah. fucking amazing. Just yeah. like a great collection of punk songs, man. Just f- fucking 
like late 70s early 80s punk songs you got a nice collection there it's a fucking banger movie with like uh aliens tied into it which is great and like the sequel is a graphic novel fantastic yeah, yeah. so yeah repo man i mean of course has iggy pop on there Yes, it does. Uh, so we're tying this all together. And then um, uh, Black Flag's TV Party, from what I remember. And then I can't remember what the Fear song is on there, but it's really fucking good. And it's off the record. And it's going to drive me crazy. Let me look this up. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> hold on. Hold on. I'm vamping. I'm using the internet to discover things. It is great. He, oh, yeah. Okay. It, you know, Fear's the record, which everyone should check out, if nothing more than to listen to the uh, I, I Love Living in the City, as well as Fuck Christmas songs, uh, <laughs> which is uh, very much worthwhile on there. Yeah. It is a it's a fantastic dude. Banger. Repo Man, such a good pick. Um, the the other one that I had and I and uh, oh man, this this one really gets passed up. It's one of the best selling soundtracks of all time. The Big Chill Man. That soundtrack is fucking incredible. I uh, my dad definitely has that the Forrest Gump soundtrack and another one which I think might be Mr. Holland's Opus or not. Yeah, the Big Chill. It's like it's Motown fucking yeah. classics just fucking... but then within the context of the movie it's v- very super depressing <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's that is very true uh it is super de- fucking depressing um i think uh i think we need to mention purple rain just yeah, because absolutely. uh it's uh it's just a fucking incredible album and in like purple rain you never think of purple rain as a soundtrack and yet it is a soundtrack. Yeah, when you watch the movie a lot of those songs are right there, right? They're in your fucking face. They're like Brian Hasty with his bass in your face. <laughs> also, uh, uh I mentioned at the outset of of this segment um uh Curtis Mayfield Superfly like go listen to the first track Little Child Running Wild. It is such a beautiful song. The first uh, like half minute is like tabla and then like some horns kick in and then like the the soul and the funk hit you and then it's like th- super short it's like a half hour 35 minutes it's definitely worth a listening uh th- a listen you know there's a freddy's dead pusher man etc etc the title track superfly all worthwhile if you've never listened to it and i know that it's hailed as like one of the best soundtracks ever and there's a reason as to why that is yeah same with uh the harder they come by jimmy Cliff. oh yeah and shaft by isaac yep. hayes disgraced yep. disgraced scientologist isaac hayes who also appeared on the south park soundtrack as chef right yes so. man uh i remember uh listening to chocolate salty balls back in the uh, simultaneous yep fucking incredible <laughs> rob let us head on over to the b-side recommendation to end things off for episode six brian we're gonna link arms we're gonna skip on over there let's do it <laughs> All right, Rob, it is the uh, B-side recommendation portion of the show where we usually uh, give out something that we're listening to or something that uh, apparently we're reading or seeing or viewing or being affected by because I don't know what you're going to hit me with. So <laughs> I'm going to leave. Uh, uh, I'm going to let you lead this one off because I'm very curious to see what you're about to say. All right. Uh, honorable mention I, because it deserves an honorable mention because it dropped today. Go listen to Jason Isbell and the 400 units. Fucking be afraid. It's a fucking yes. incredible song. It's a call to arms for any musician out there who like, you know, sees themselves as holier than now and like, don't do shit about shit. Um, also uh, amazing production choices, amazing production choices. Like if you really listen to that song three or four times, you're going to understand why, uh, he went the way he did on that song. So fucking give it a listen. Uh, my B side recommendation is a singular song. Oh no. And, um, I feel like this is where you torment me. <laughs> maybe, maybe, but I doubt it. Uh, so, you know that I, I've i been a fan of wrestling for a long time. Yes. 
<laughs> you may know where this is going, but uh, there, one of my favorite wrestlers made his return to wrestling, and uh, there's one banger song that I've been uh, listening to on repeat since it happened, and of course I'm talking about Metalingus by Alterbridge. <laughs> Yes, Metalingus, the song that makes you think that he's talking about tongue-punching some stainless steel. But that's not why we're here. That is not uh, why we're here. Uh, you- so firstly, uh, I can't... Uh, fucking 2020 is rude. So uh, welcome back, Edge, right? Let's let's start with that. Um, yes. Uh, welcome back. <laughs> welcome back. The Metalingus. man that would, was told he would never wrestle again gets triple neck fusion surgery, and he's back, baby. Fucking Royal Rumble, number 21. Oh, he's back. Does so he have I've, a boring opponent for WrestleMania? You bet he does. It's Randy Orton, but... So I've been um, uh, I've been seeing... like I, I don't watch wrestling the way I used to, but I will interact and engage around anything. So on wrestling Twitter, um, uh, apparently during the Royal Rumble, uh, the camera actually was just so bad that like it kept cutting away from Edge. Like, it was the weirdest thing. So I keep seeing these, like, uh, supercuts of, like, really bad, uh, like, uh, in-the-truck decisions to cut to different cameras. Well, the thing is, is, like, those, like, what they wanted is they wanted to cut it, like, with different shots. That's not the way to, you know, it was going down in the actual Royal Rumble. But, like, I think one of the most incredible things is, is, like, when you watch the video of his music hitting and everybody's like, no, no, there's no way that it's him, you know, and, like, he comes out. Look at the man's fucking face before he gets intense. He's trying desperately not to cry, and I love that about that fucking uh, walk down the aisle there. Um, so wow, this is such a, an on-point pick. I love it. I love it. Um, also, like, okay, the return of Edge, the return of the XFL. What year is this? I'm very confused. I I, I think it's like '99, dude. Uh, but I I, I want to advocate this song for one other thing, Brian. It should be. The anthem of 2020. It's a song about seeing clearly. It's 2020. <laughs> we got 2020 vision. Why I can't is this you're bringing this to? You're bringing my work to this podcast. Yeah, I, I can't believe you're doing that, dude. I know, I know. Um, but like, yeah, a song you think is going to be about tongue punching some stainless steel, really about seeing things clearly for the first time in a long time. Definitely a good theme for 2020 metalingus i'm gonna listen to it about five thousand more times before can the you do me over. a favor and slip in a disturbed rendition of glass shatters in there somewhere for me please? yeah absolutely. like I, that's all i really want because I, I i listen to that song on a regular basis i'm not even gonna lie to you <laughs> i just the, when that riff hits man mm. i uh i'm learning more things about you <laughs> you know you're you're doing this i learned on double density that you sing Celine Dion songs in a non-ironic way. It's true. I, I love that. her. I um, love her dearly. I, I will say I did not uh, like waiting to exhale lost to Celine Dion in that album. The I know. Category. I know. And, I know. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I'll ever be able to forgive her for that, but I do have a large amount of respect for her. She's a tiny woman. She has the most amazing set of vocals I have ever heard. Um, but uh, you know, she's got some bangers out there. We've put them on uh, some of our playlists that you can find uh, on Spotify if you so, so choose to. Rob, I don't know if we've ever mentioned this in the podcast. And I don't think we've ever talked to this. So this is a gift to everyone who's reached this point. But do you know, um, so Celine Dion um, has a son mm-hmm. uh, who also is known as a rapper <laughs> named Big Tip. 
It's it's not nearly as bad as Tom Hanks' Chet Hayes, but like uh, I will see if there's anything on Spotify. But he goes off, and my coworkers and I regularly will share big tip songs uh, and also make each other laugh. <laughs> so uh, uh, um, he is a SoundCloud rapper. So big tip, René Chalangelil. Big tip, SoundCloud. So think about that. That is not my B side recommendation, though. <laughs> though I, I it, it almost could be. It could be, you know, like a, uh, an honorable mention. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to get a little earnest. So I love how this section is reserved for whatever's on your mind. And I love this because I feel like I'm the straight-laced one. Um, um, I've chosen a, an EP by an act called Terror Jr. So they are labeled alt-pop, which I don't really understand. I guess it's like pop music not made by, um, you know, uh, well-known producers or whatever. But uh, it is a uh, an EP called The Girl Who Cried Purple. And it came out uh, in the middle of 2017 and is definitely worth a listen. Highlights include um, the songs Fight and Fuck and then Back Baby. Um, so to those of you going through some wintertime blooms like I am and Rob loves to torment me about, uh, this may not help that, but by God, will this make you end up in your feelings a bit? It, it'll uh, it'll punch you in the feels? Yes, unlike Big Tip, who will just punch you. <laughs> we'll just like punch you, but like not hard enough to really hurt, for, hurt you that much. <laughs> I mean, he's only like 18 or 19, right? So, um, yeah. 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 You know, give him give him time. See, you know, see where he goes from yeah. there. You know, you never know. So before I forget, everyone can check us out on socials. You can uh, hit us up on Twitter at the Coda Podcast. Please let us know about uh, your thoughts on this uh, uh, award-winning episode. Uh, same thing uh, on Instagram. You can also email us at thecodacast at gmail.com with your questions and or comments and or hate mail and or vitriol and or uh, share a love of Cillian and hatred of Ticketmaster and Live Nation. Absolutely. You can also check the show notes for each episode for links to our Spotify playlists. I curate <laughs> these playlists. Like, so, I will listen to episodes three or four times to make sure that I get every single song that I think should end up on a playlist on a Rob, playlist. What was, what was episode five like? It, 115 fucking songs. It was crazy. It was, I saw that, and then I was like, this is going to be a long one. This is going to be a very long one. Uh, but I admire your tenacity of making sure that the people get what they need out of this. The only unfortunate thing is, um, for some of our soundtracks, they're not available on Spotify, so good slash bad news, I guess. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you can just, you know, pick the highlights and, and, and stuff, but, like, you're going to get as good a experience. representation of an episode with these playlists as possible every yes. single time it's yeah. my guarantee so rob this has been the coda podcast episode six and uh until next episode i want to tell everyone remember to make sure to keep the cans on and i'll see you around buddy i'll see you later man